I've been thinking a lot about singing and music this week, particularly as I was preparing for this sermon. Uh, because if you've got your Bibles and you hadn't already done so, please take them and turn with me once again to the book of Philippians and to chapter 1, because today I have entitled my sermon, The Song of a You-All Gospel First Family. The Song of a You-All Gospel First Family. We're in the middle of this series that I have entitled, Who Are We? And we've been investigating that, that question, who are we here at Ivy Creek? Well, You'll see in your bulletin, we've got a statement that we came up with quite a number of years ago now, but, and I've got it memorized. It might be worth it for you to kind of, for those of you who are part of our family, to, to think through it. But what we've decided, based upon our study through the book of Philippians in the past, is that we are you all, gospel-first, servant-hearted, family of believers who want our lives to count for the glory of God. Every single one of those phrases is important, and we're kind of walking our way through them as we walk our way through the book of Philippians. And if you missed any of the, the first two service, uh, sermons in this series, in which we described what a you-all family is and what a gospel-first family is, you're welcome to go online. They, they should be posted there, and you can watch them or listen to them. But today, what I want us to do, in light of the fact that we've established that we're a you-all gospel-first family, I want us to think about the fact that that as this, this group of believers that value these things, what should the song of our lives sound like? What, what should others hear when we sing? How should we sing with one another? And of course, I'm using that in a, as a metaphor for, for, for what, how we're to live our lives. But nevertheless, I want us to think about it from the way of how should our song be an impact in the world? To get to that, Let's begin reading what the Apostle Paul writes there in verse 27 of chapter 1 of Philippians. He, he writes this to the church. He says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation... And that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this opportunity that we have to come to this place, yes, to sing praises to your name, but also to open our Bibles and to read your very words to us. We thank you for this opportunity that you've granted to us this morning. Now I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak through your words to us even now, bringing conviction into our lives where that conviction is necessary, and also reminding us of the truths for which we have long since held. I pray that those things would impact us in such a way so that when we leave this place this morning, we will leave with a clear commitment to following you in obedience. I pray these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. 
In the two previous sermons in this series, I provided you an outline that was just basically a one word hooks for us to hang our thoughts on. I've done things a little differently today. I'm going to provide you with some sentences, some structure a little deeper just to help us understand, I believe, what Paul is communicating to us and also to help us as we understand that to work our way through uh, this passage using the metaphor of singing. Um, in fact, the very first point that I want you to see this morning is, is simply this. The song of our lives must be in harmony with the gospel. That's your first point. The song of our lives must be in harmony with the gospel. You may have noticed when I first started reading verse 27, it's a little bit clunky. You just start, only, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. And it, it just kind of starts without any real context. That's why it's important that we back up and understand exactly what Paul was saying in the previous paragraph. I, in fact, I'm not even 100% sure that Paul would have understood that we would have taken one of his letters down and, and divided it into paragraphs and even into sentences. Uh, I think there's great value in doing that. That is, as an expositor, that's what I, that's what I make my practice of doing, is looking at, at, at what Paul writes in its sentence structure and even down to the words itself, as we'll see today. But when we do that, we have to widen our lens back, and we have to see exactly what was Paul saying prior to this point. And as you recall, if you were with us last week, we looked at what Paul said. He, though he was incarcerated in prison while he was writing this letter, he, he, he said that he believed that he would eventually be released from prison and that he would be able to come back and continue his partnership with the Philippian church and, and continue on in their, in their special relationship that they had. Now that sets the context for what he says in verse 27, which I believe if you pull the second clause of that sentence up, you can come with something like this where he says, whether I come and see you again or remain absent, I want to hear of your affairs and know that your conduct is worthy of the gospel of Christ, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for faith in the gospel. Now, I think that smooths the transition out a little bit and helps us to understand the context as we move into this passage. What I want you to know is that every major English translation of the Bible translates verse 27 to communicate that these Philippian believers were to conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Now, to keep in line with the metaphor that I'm wanting to look at this morning about singing, I paraphrase Paul's words so that they command us to sing in harmony with the gospel. Because really, that's what, that's what Paul is saying. But in a literal sense, what he's actually doing is he's appealing to their citizenship. In fact, the verb in verse 27 really talks about that their, their conduct and the way that they live their life is supposed to be in, in, is supposed to be consistent with their citizenship. In fact, the Greek word comes from the root word polis, from which we get our English words metropolis. We get our words police. We get our word political from that same Greek word. And every one of those words invariably point back to citizenship. Paul is simply saying the way that you act and live your life should be congruent with the citizenship that you claim. Now, it's important to note that for the Philippians, citizenship was very important. In fact, Philippi, the city, was considered to be a little Rome. And the people who lived there were very proud of that. They were proud of the fact that they were considered to be Roman citizens. That was a big deal. 
to them. But Paul is pointing them to an even greater deal in their life. He's pointing them to the fact that they had a greater citizenship, one that was not just connected to an earthly empire, but one that was connected to a heavenly empire. In fact, later on in this same book, in chapter 3, verse 20, Paul identifies himself with them, and he says, for our citizenship is in heaven. You see, for Paul, it didn't really matter whether you were a Roman citizen or just a, a citizen of Macedonia or a Greek citizen or, or a Jewish citizen. What mattered most was were you a heavenly citizen? And that is to which Paul is pointing these Philippian believers. And what he is saying is, if, you're, if you are a citizen of heaven, then your life ought to reflect that in the way that you live. The song that you sing ought to be in harmony with the gospel. I like the way that Alistair Begg has put it. He, he has paraphrased Paul's instruction to the Philippian church this way. He says, every day in how you live your lives, you're making a statement. So make a statement that is in harmony with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to even state it this way. He says, Paul's words are a call to the Philippians to close the gap between their belief and their behavior to close the gap between the creed they possess and the conduct that they display. Brothers and sisters, Paul's words to the Philippian church are no less applicable to you and to me. We must conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, we must walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. It's another way of Paul saying, live your life so that your conduct is worthy of the gospel. And when we do that, what we recognize is there's no room for hypocrisy in our lives. There's no room for, for that which we say we believe, but our behavior doesn't line up with it. No, our lives are to be in harmony with the gospel. What we say we believe ought to be the dominant note by how we live. And so the song of our lives must be in harmony with gospel. That's the first point on your outline. The question is, what does that look like? Or maybe the better way to state is, what does that sound like? What does it sound like when our lives are sung in harmony with the gospel? Well, notice that Paul goes on to say in verse 27 that the Philippian church, he wants to hear about them standing fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That leads me to the second point that I want you to see this morning. The second point is this, when exposed to external opposition, we stand for the faith of the gospel by singing in unison. When, when we're opposed from the outside forces that seek to dismantle who we are and to attack that which we believe, we are to stand firm in defense of the gospel for the faith of the gospel by singing in unison with one another. That's what Paul says. So stand fast, is, is, that's the verb there. It's qualified by the participle striving together. And really what that means is that Paul is saying that when the chips are down, a you all gospel first family will stick by one another and you'll fight it out side by side, arm in arm. And I want you to know that certainly means that, that we are to stick by one another through the difficult times of life. Listen, just in this church family, let me, I've seen it time and time again when, when people have hit rough stretches financially. When people have come up against some very difficult and hard health-related issues. 
When some of you out there have lost loved ones, I have seen this church rally around you in ways, and I have experienced that in my own self. To know that we are a family of believers that, that love one another and we will stick by one another as we strive through difficult moments, locking arm in arm. And every bit of that is absolutely important. But what I want you to note is that Paul, when he emphasizes this, this striving together, what he emphasizes is that we strive together for the faith of the gospel. That's what I mean when I say we're to sing in unison with one another. It means that we're to sing the same song on the same pitch. I like how William Taylor has interpreted the passage. He says this, Paul's expectation for the Christian teacher, the student, the nurse, or the parent is that as they entered the staff room, the lecture hall, the hospital, or the playground, they would be crystal clear about their priorities, which is this. I am a citizen of heaven, first and foremost. And today my chief concern as I stand firm will be to strive side by side with others for the public truth of the gospel. That's it. That, that is one of the crucial marks of being a member of a you all gospel first family. It is being willing not only to partner with other believers, but to strive together for the sake of seeing the gospel advanced. It's worth noting that with Paul's use of the, the word striving together, well, just those words alone tells us it's not always going to be easy to do that, is it? Striving means that you're, you're having to work against something. You're having to, to, to exert effort to, to accomplish something. It's not going to be easy to partner with one another. We can expect there to be opposition, and sometimes that opposition is going to be fierce. Paul immediately tells us that we are to be fearless, though, when that opposition comes. In verse 28, he says this, We must not in any way be terrified by our adversaries. That word terrified is an interesting word. It, it's not used in the, in the New Testament anywhere else but right here. This is the only time it's used. But in other Greek writing, the word terrified actually was mostly used lots of times talking about horses. Some of you out there know about horses. I, I don't know much about horses at all, except for what I've seen on TV. And, and what I've seen on TV by watching those old westerns was that when a horse would get scared, when a, when a snake would come up or when there would be something to cause a horse to, 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 to get worried, it would start pawing its feet and its nostrils would flare out and it would start backing up and looking. It's always looking for a place to run to get away from that which is coming toward it. That's the word terrified. That's the word that Paul uses. It's also used sometimes of, of armies. When you have an army that's encamped and getting ready to fight and they look and they see the bigger army coming their direction and they start counting up the number of people that they've got and they look and see how many there are out there and they realize there's no sense in us staying here and fighting and they lay down their weapons and they cut and run the other way. That's the word terrified. It's looking for an escape route. Notice what Paul says. That is not the behavior that is conducive to a gospel, Christ-centered way of living. If you're a citizen of heaven, you don't cut and run when opposition comes. You stand firm in the gospel, stand fast while striving with one another, arm in arm, while the opposition comes your way. Now, when, when it does come our way, we also have to deal with the fact that sometimes, sometimes opposition causes us to think not so clearly. Sometimes we may be tempted to think, well, everything is supposed to work out the way it's supposed to. It's supposed to be good. 
part of the process that I have experienced in my life, even personally, but even in raising our children, is to let, let them know, look, everything doesn't always work out the way that you think it should. Just because you do the right thing and you do it at the right time and you act in an appropriate way does not mean that everything's always going to turn out the way that you hoped that it would turn out. Sometimes, sometimes life's hard. And sometimes there's a force of evil that's coming against what you're attempting to accomplish. And I want you to know that, that when that happens, what Paul is saying, especially as it pertains to the gospel, that when you are opposed from those outside, it is a sign. He says specifically there, it serves as proof that in the judgment, our enemies will be defeated and we will be saved. So, so just because we experience opposition doesn't mean that, that we are the ones at fault. No, it means that God is showing us that there is, a, there is a war to be fought and there is a battle to be won. But notice it's not only a sign, it's also a gift. Notice Paul states in verse 29, for to you it has been granted. That word really at its root is the same word that we understand as charis, which means grace. It has been graced to you, granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. In other words, Paul is saying that suffering for the sake of the gospel is a gracious gift of God just as salvation is a gracious gift of God. But we don't typically see it that way. We tend to look at, at suffering as, as God's neglect. We tend to look at suffering as God's abandonment of us. But Paul tells us that this type of suffering is, is not only a sign, it is also a proof that God's grace is at work in our lives. Remember what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 10, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The suffering that may come into our lives on, because we are standing firm for the gospel does not tell us that God has abandoned us. It tells us that God has blessed us with a blessing that exceeds maybe our ability to understand, but it is a blessing nonetheless. And Paul knew exactly what that blessing was like, which is why he wrote what he did in verse 30. He said, this is the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So, so as citizens of heaven, what should our lives look like, especially when we experience external opposition? What, how should we sing? How should we sing with our own voice? How should we sing collectively among our brothers and sisters? Well, Paul has told us, when, when exposed to external opposition, we must stand for the faith of the gospel by singing in unison with each other. But that's not all. You see, Paul recognized that the threat against the gospel didn't just come from outside sources. It also can come and rise up from the inside as well. In fact, the opening verses of chapter 2 really link us into that. And it keeps with that same, that same theme of singing. Notice the third point on your outline this morning. Third point is this, when threatened by internal discord, we remain unified by singing in harmony. 
When threatened by internal discord, we remain unified by singing in harmony. Think back to what we learned the first week that we examined this text and we asked the question, who are we? And we determined that we were a you-all family. We talked about the fact that we're a diverse family. We're diverse in a lot of ways. We're diverse generationally. We are diverse ethnically. We are diverse culturally. We're a diverse bunch. That's what makes us a you-all. That's why, that's why Paul refers to us that way, as a being a you-all family that brings all of these various groups together into one. And in many ways, what we recognize is that that diverse makeup really sets the stage for what Paul is going to communicate in these verses. He, he has an obvious emphasis on unity. And he has an obvious emphasis on partnership together. And in fact, that, that emphasis really permeates the entire letter And what it tells us implicitly is that this church in Philippi struggled at times with remaining together. I think we'll see that in some of the examples that Paul gives to us later in this letter. They struggled with remaining unified. They struggled with their diversity because factions oftentimes wanted to push for this thing or another faction wanted to push that direction. And it was constantly trying to drive them out and Paul is bringing them back together. And what that tells us is that the church in Philippi really serves as a model church for us, you, you heard me tell Zach and Allie earlier in the first service, we had a couple of families join in the first service and we told them the same thing that we'd say it every time somebody comes. And I know you probably get tired of hearing it, but there's a reason why I repeat it again and again and again that we are not a perfect church family. You want to know why I repeat it again and again and again? Because we are not a perfect church family. You are not led by perfect staff. We acknowledge that not as a way of an excuse. We acknowledge it because as long as we can remember that, hey, we're not perfect, that means that there's always room for us to seek forgiveness from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And it also means that we recognize that individual does not, is not able to just speak with all authority. He only speaks with the authority that God has given him through the word. And so that is why I always let you know I am not a perfect pastor. And that's why it's your responsibility as believers to go back and check everything I say and compare it with the Word of God. That is, that is the responsibility of a church family is to make sure that what I say lines up with the text. And then together we recognize that we can extend grace to one another. In regard to that, Paul says based upon the fact that we are a you-all gospel first family, he begins chapter 2 with some questions. And he says, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, Paul's not asking, does that exist, really? These weren't questions as if maybe that's the case, maybe it's not. What Paul is actually saying is, this is the genetic code that unites all of us. We're a part of this family of believers and all of these things we share in common with one another. We have the common consolation of Christ. We have the common comfort of love. We have the common fellowship of the Spirit. And we have the common affection and mercy that is ours in Christ. Now beginning that way, what he says is since that's the case, make my joy complete. Fulfill my joy. Well, how? He says by remaining like-minded. That means Thinking about the, thinking of the same things about the essentials. Having the same love, meaning having a mutual love of one another and expressing that love in tangible ways. 
being of one accord. In other words, not allowing inconsequential differences to divide you. And then being of one mind, that actually means to be intent on the same thing, to have a common goal that you are pursuing. Paul is not stating that everybody needs to be exactly alike. He's not saying that we all need to to, to, to be exactly the same in every situation. To pull it into our own church context, Paul doesn't assume that we're all going to like the same music or that we're all going to wear the same clothes or that we're going to all have the same tastes and things. We're not all going to like the same football team. He's not saying that that has to be that. But we are to have the same mindset and we are to have to be the same when it comes to what's on the inside and with what's driving us in this world in which we live. We need to be in harmony with one another, singing the same song on the same pitch. I love what Paul, how Paul puts it in Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. He says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With one voice. That's a good way to describe what Paul is saying in this passage. We might say that he is telling us that as it pertains to the gospel and to the essentials, we are to sing in unison with each other. In fact, maybe the best way to describe to, to demonstrate that is just to have Keith come up. Keith, do me a favor. Play Amazing Grace, just the melody line in two different octaves. So he was playing two different octaves, but he was playing the same note. He was on the, the same note and playing the same pitch in two different octaves. And so it was in unison. He wasn't on the exact same note all the way through. There was no division, though, in what he was playing. He was playing different octaves, but the same note. And that is what I think illustrates what Paul was communicating to the Philippians. He's saying, be on the same pitch with one another. Be like-minded. Be of the same love. Be of one accord. Be of one mind. In other words, be unified and stay together. It is the amazing grace of the gospel that has saved you and united you together in the same genetic code. You are all citizens of heaven by your faith in Christ So stay unified and sing with one voice to the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's be honest, that's not always easy to do. In fact, it can be downright hard. And that's why why Paul has to tell these Philippian believers that if they were going to sing in unison with one another, if they were going to have a spiritual oneness together, then they will have to be on guard against selfish ambition they were going to have to be on guard against empty conceit. Furthermore, 
Each member of the church was going to have to look out not just for themselves. They were going to have to look out for the others. They were going to have to take into consideration what the others in their congregation needed. One author has noted this. He said, the overarching concern of this section is that the issues of humility, is the issue of humility which stands in opposition to selfishness and looking out for oneself. Once more, I think we can actually understand what Paul means to communicate by this by hearing it through music. So, Keith, since you're there, go ahead and just play a C major chord for me. All right, you hear that. C is the dominant note. And then the others come in in harmony with it. C major chord. Now, he's not playing in unison there. He's playing different pitches. But notice that they're all in harmony with one another. That's what I think Paul is telling the Philippians. And he's telling us that we are to remain unified in the essentials. But there's room for diversity among us. But even in that diversity, we're to remain harmonious. We're to remain like that C major chord. But, I don't know, throw me in a G sharp. Just arpeggiating. Now, I don't like that. I don't know about y'all. Some of you music nerds like Will, he told me he liked augmented. That's an augmented chord. To me, it's just, it's discord. It doesn't sound good together. It's not what, it, you, you just kind of hear that G sharp clanking in there with that C major chord. And you're like, that just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit what it's supposed to sound like. And this is what I want you to know. This is, this is, what, this is what I think Paul is trying to say. For some, they may come along in our lives and say, you know what, though, G sharp's my favorite pitch. I like singing that one. Matter of fact, I'm going to sing G sharp every chance I get. You might have a trumpet player decides G sharp's his favorite trumpet note, and he's going to play that trumpet note regardless if it fits in the whole rest of the chord. That's what I like. G sharp's my thing. Paul says that that kind of attitude is inappropriate with living and singing your song in harmony with the gospel. Attitudes that say, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I don't care what my consequences, the consequences of my actions are. I don't care what goes lacking among the church family because of my inactivity. I'm going to keep doing my own thing, my own way, without any concern for how it affects others or how it affects the harmony of the church body. And what Paul says is that kind of an attitude is absolutely 100% wrong. Such attitudes are not in unison with the gospel. They're not in unison with the consolation we have in Christ. They're not in unison with the comfort of love. They're not in unison with the fellowship and the partnership we have in the Spirit. They're not in unison with the affection and the mercy that we have through Christ. In fact, Paul states being united together, being a you-all gospel first family means that our genetic code necessitates that instead of making sure that we always get what we want and having things our way, we are to replace that attitude with one that esteems others better than ourselves, one that looks out for the interests of others rather than our own. In other words, we are to replace pride with humility. Thank you. Now, let me, 
Let me tell you, in these verses to follow, Paul is actually going to go and demonstrate exactly what that looks like from the life and the rule and the reign of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. But he intends for us to know what we can drag away from this passage this morning is this, is that when threatened by internal discord, we remain unified when we sing in harmony with one another. So the question that's been on our minds throughout this entire morning is, is for our, how our conduct is supposed to be worthy of the gospel. How are we to live in such a way that is worthy of the gospel? How are we to sing the life song of our lives and be in harmony with the gospel? Well, that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. As members of this You All Gospel First family, we must sing in unison with one another about the gospel of Jesus and in harmony with one another about everything. Listen, Paul has told us what it means. He's, he's demonstrated it from the text, what our song should sound like when we sing in harmony. And he's told us that we are to partner with one another for the sake of the gospel. And when we live our lives worthy of that gospel message, we will stand firm and fearless, united together when we face opposition from those who are outside. And furthermore, we will maintain a unified focus on the gospel and we will sing together in unison, being of the same mind, of the same love, in full accord with one another. And at the same time, we will live harmoniously with one another, counting others more significant than ourselves and always on the lookout for the interests and the well-being of others. And as he says back in verse 27, that is the conduct that's worthy of the gospel. It's what one's life song sounds like when it is sung in harmony with Jesus. And the only way that that will ever be a reality is when we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. That is the only way that it will ever happen. You and I will never be able to do this on our own. It will only happen when we, when we determine and we make sure that we recognize that Jesus is the dominant note in the chord. When we submit our lives to him and to him alone, when he is the dominant note, everything else in our life has to come underneath his lordship. And when that happens individually for me and for you and for you and for you, then it becomes possible for us to come together as a you all gospel first family and to live together in unison, recognizing the essentials about which we find ourselves and also to live in harmony with one another. Apart from him being the dominant note, we will never do it. So here's the question. Have you submitted to the dominant note, the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you given your heart and life to him? Have you repented of your sins and asked him to be your Lord and Savior? If you've never done that, that's step number one. Submit to the dominant note. Submit to Jesus Christ, to him and to him alone. I would ask you to do that today. I'd ask you to take me by the hand and say, can you pray with me? Can you show me? Can you tell me what I need to know in order to become a Christian? I will be happy to do that. Maybe your testimony is that you've become a believer in Christ. You've trusted in him. But maybe through this text you've become convicted of the fact that you're not standing firm. Maybe, maybe your commitment to the gospel has waned. It's keeping you from plugging in. It's keeping you from serving the Lord. If that's the case, then I invite you to make that right with the Lord before you leave. Perhaps the Lord has convicted you today that you've not consistently placed your own interest or your, the, the interests of others ahead of your own. And if that's the case, then I invite you 
to make that right with the Lord today as well so that we may sing both in unison and in harmony with our brothers and sisters. You know, I said at the very beginning today that I was one of the things that I'm most proud of is being a part of this church family that loves singing, loves music so much. One of my, one of my greatest joys is to be in this family where that is such a huge part of who we are. That being said, may we both individually and collectively live our lives in such a way that our life song may be in harmony with the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for being so good to us and loving us as you do. The Bible tells us very clearly that while we were yet sinners, you demonstrated your love by sending your son to die. There's nothing that we will ever stand before you and be able to brag about, nothing that we can boast about. Our boast is only in Jesus. Thank you for that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being willing to come and die for us. Lord willing, I look so forward next week to considering that from this passage right here in Philippians 2, what that means for us. But I thank you for giving us the opportunity to be saved and to be gathered together as a family of believers as we are this morning around your word and around the truth of the gospel. Now I pray that you would continue to unite us together as brothers and sisters under, under the lordship of Jesus and that we would continue to charge forth into this world carrying the good news of the gospel of Christ. Let that be our story. Let that be our testimony. This I pray in Christ's holy name.